0: Welcome to Mission Driven, a conversation about how startups leverage their social mission as competitive advantage. Mission Driven is hosted by Better Ventures, a seed stage venture fund in Oakland, California, backing entrepreneurs using science and technology to address the world's biggest challenges. You can find us on the web at better.bc and on Twitter at Better Ventures. I'm Rick Moss from Better Ventures, and I'm here today with Michael Lombardo, who is a pioneer in education technology and children's literacy. As everyone knows, I think reading is fundamental to learning and students need to be able to read in order to do all their other learning. So it can have a profound impact on children and their growth, yet a shocking number of children are not reading at grade level in the US. So better literacy learning and indeed better ways to learn more generally are just badly needed in our education system. This is a super interesting topic, it's the thing that BookNook is addressing. And we're gonna get deep into it today with Michael.
1: What they're gonna remember is this company shares my values. They get up every morning motivated by the same things I do. They care about my students, they understand my students. And I'm gonna keep talking to this company even though I'm gonna completely forget everything they said about their products. I'm gonna keep talking to this company. And I think that's paying off.
0: I'd like to welcome our guest, Michael Lombardo, founder and CEO of BookNook. Before doing BookNook, he ran a nonprofit that does similar things called Reading Partners, right here in Oakland, where we are. And before that, he had a distinguished career in academia as a director of scholarships at Cal Berkeley, among other things. So, welcome, Michael. Thank you, Rick. It's great to be here. So, we met way back when you raised your pre seed round long ago. We joined reach capital, reach partners on that. And then you ended up with sort of a dream team of them and us and Urban Innovation Fund and Impact Engine.
1: It's true. Now we have been fortunate to work with um, mission-oriented investors from the very start. Um, And I'm proud that uh, even as the company's grown and and raised subsequent funding, that all of our institutional investors are ESG investors. And so I think we, we got that DNA right from the start.
0: And you think that really helps to have impact investors versus... A non impact.
1: Absolutely. Um, you know whether you're talking about mission or otherwise, I advise founders all the time. Ensure that your interests are aligned with your investors' interests. You're building mm-hmm. the same business together. Um, that's true for you know product and strategy, but um, especially true for mission. Um, and if mm-hmm. you are a dual bottom line company that feels that's core to who you are, then you know you want investors that view that as a feature, not a bug, um, and are mm-hmm. excited about that mm-hmm. aspect of your business.
0: Yeah. And we'll get into that more when we talk about uh, your mission. So, yeah, say a bit about what BookNook is, how it got started, how it works.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, BookNook uh, is on a mission to provide equitable access to excellent teaching to all students. We do that by providing synchronous learning software um, that uh, supports both teachers and non teachers, uh, like paraprofessionals in the classroom, as well as providing the largest virtual tutoring business in the United States. Um, so Our thesis is really that, um, you know, what students need most, uh, particularly coming out of the pandemic, is live human teaching. Um, And we facilitate that by upskilling people and, as we say, expanding the who of teaching to give more people in children's lives the ability to be great teachers, um, as well as connecting students with virtual teachers when we are working with school systems that are, unfortunately, really struggling with hiring right now. Um, And Mm -hmm. so... Yeah. So our thesis is all about synchronous instruction, live human teaching, because that the research tells us is the most powerful kind of teaching for students.
0: Yeah. So drill in a little more. So the basics are a kid is looking at a tablet, and a, a tutor or a, a teacher is also looking at a, a screen. You know, walk through that how that works, and it's so it's telelearning, or are they also shoulder to shoulder in person?
1: Yeah, it's both. Um, So it is a one-to-one device ratio program. So the student has a device and the adult they're working with has a device. Students can work one-on-one in small groups uh, or in large groups, um, although small group is what we're known for and what we recommend because that's, again, the most effective thing for students. Um, And we have a cloud-based platform that they both log into at the same time. Um, We synchronize their devices together so that the adult can kind of control a little bit what's happening on the student's screen. um, And then they do live teaching together, whether they're sitting knee-to-knee in the classroom um, or in an after-school center, um, or whether they're connecting with a video conference uh, that we provide via a Zoom integration um, so that they can do this remotely over the internet.
0: Mm-hmm. So the kid is, is reading books and the tutor is listening and helping. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it's, it's more guided than that. So the, the adult, um, which we call the reading guide, is getting a sort of scaffolded set of experiences that they'll uh, take the student through. um, That uh, depending on the student's needs, um, our program is a a K-8 English language arts program, so helping kids with reading. The student might need to work on um, phonics. um, So they're learning the letters, names, and sounds, and how they work together and how to decode words. You know, Or maybe they're past that. They're pretty good at sounding out words and they're working on understanding what they read. Um, And so actually a lot of the value of our platform is that because we... Partner with school systems and community-based organizations, we're able to gain access to data that helps us understand where students are in their reading development, kind of bring them instruction that's personalized for them, and then kind of bring along the adult instructor, the reading guide, to be able to provide that just right instruction that meets the student's needs, um, even if that person doesn't have a background in teaching. Um, And so... Uh, so I might sit down and and say, oh, my gosh, I have to teach, you know, this student the long A sound. Like, I don't know what to do with that. Um, and the idea is no problem. You know, we can use scaffolding and a layer of artificial intelligence to kind of help you, you know, sort of make good decisions and give you the materials that you need and kind of prompt you along. Um, and that enables us to, as I said before, expand the who of teaching. Uh, grab folks like community volunteers, uh, which is what the nonprofit I ran, worked with, or what are sometimes called classified staff or paraprofessionals, those are like the non-teacher staff of the school building, and to, you know, uh, upskill them uh, into the into great reading teachers. Um, so so yeah, we take something that's kind of hard to do and try to make it easy.
0: Wow, it's really uh, matured since we first started working together. So that's awesome. <laughs> um, say a bit about the problem. Like, how bad is it? Um, what, give us some numbers.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, even before the pandemic, uh, reading was in a state of crisis in the United States and globally. Um, so. You know, there's a regular assessment the federal government does called the National Assessment of Educational Progress, sometimes called the Nation's Report Card. Consistently, they found that only one out of three fourth graders in the United States reads at a proficient level. If you screen that for students of color or economically disadvantaged students, that's only one in five. Um, and so it's a dramatic problem. And fortunately, in the most recent Nate, before the pandemic, um, we saw that um, those numbers had not improved over 10 years. It, it came up a little bit and then it came back down again. And so so it's not just a serious problem, but it's an intractable problem that has been bedeviling public educators for over a decade, for as long as we've measured it.
0: And you're, you know, many people have heard the sayings that like, your ability to read can really determine your, your outcome in life. Um, say a bit about that.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, you can predict with 70% accuracy whether a student's going to go to college based on their third grade reading scores. Um, it's it's really crazy to think um, that you know children who are 8, 9, 10 years old are, are sort of being put in a path. And if we as the adults in their lives don't give them the supports they deserve uh, to put them on the right path, then they're going to have that disadvantage their whole life. Um, and it's... Unfortunate um, that we can't get this very basic thing right. Um, but if you don't, yeah, you're you're sort of um, giving that student a disadvantage that's going to carry with them all through the rest of their schooling career and, and their whole life. Um, and, you know, literacy challenges correlate with, you know, negative health outcomes with, you know, less earning power. Like, it's, it's not just a matter of being successful in school. It's a matter of being successful in life. Um, so... Particularly, you know, in the twenty first century, it's it's difficult to imagine anybody being successful in a, a middle class lifestyle if they have serious literacy challenges. And um, so, it's just something we absolutely have to get right for every student.
0: Right. So it's it, it's uh it's just urgent for society to get this right, and that's exactly what Bookmuc does. Right. So say what what kind of results are you able to get?
1: Yeah, we're really proud that um, what we do is is based on evidence. Um, we are actually, I'll, I'll give you a scoop, Rick. Um, we're just about All to right. announce next week uh, the results of a evaluation that we did uh, of a program in uh, Prince George's County, Maryland, which is the suburbs of Washington, D.C., where we worked with Teachers College at Columbia University to study the effects of virtual tutoring for some of the highest-need students in that district. And we were able to show that students um, who... Received tutoring um, made significantly greater gains in reading versus students who didn't receive tutoring and uh, that it was a statistically significant and positive effect. And students made about 40% more growth on district administrative assessments. Um, so a pretty pretty good effect size.
0: Um, wow. So like yeah. just generally speaking of, of the people who are reading below grade level, are you able to get a certain percentage of those up to grade level? And, and what is that and how long does it take?
1: Yeah, we tend to less measure whether students are at grade level or not at grade level mm. it's more complicated than that. Um, okay.
0: But, okay. you know, what
1: we look for is acceleration and growth. Um, and so students will typically accelerate the pace of learning uh, that they are kind of mastering reading skills and moving forward on by about 200% while they work with us. And, you know, some students are pretty close to grade level. Um, sometimes districts call those bubble students or strategic students. Like it's like they're they're right there at the edge, Um but oftentimes students come to us, you know, uh, who are two, three, four years below benchmark. Um, and, and so, you know, the reason we prefer to talk about growth is we, we don't want those students to feel like they aren't succeeding just because they haven't gotten to grade level. We want to always take a positive growth mindset with our students. We want to encourage them to, you know, embrace their growth. And their pathway to grade level might take longer because they're starting, you know, further behind, but we still want to celebrate them um, and have them feel like they are, you know, succeeding with their, with their reading skills.
0: Got it. So society has sort of a crisis and an urgent problem, and you guys are addressing it with technology and a solution, and it's making like a measurable, you know, documented impact on the kids who need this at the time they need it most in their life, and can help them, you know, continue to grow and learn and change that outcome that that right now is is being determined in thir- in third grade, right?
1: Yeah, exactly right. Now this is a, a crucial window, uh, and those stats I gave you are pre-pandemic stats too. So if anything, mm-hmm. um, what we're seeing in the Get data, and the multiple studies are showing that this very bad problem got much worse. Um, and so, you know, uh, it was already a crisis. Uh, I don't know if there's a word for a crisis within a crisis, but mm-hmm. um, but yeah, yeah, the urgency is is much higher now um, because these students were already struggling had two years of disrupted school um, and as I was mentioning, you know, a lot of the research ties to proficiency in early grades, third and fourth grade. Um, and if I'm a third grader right now, the last time I had a fully normal year of school was kindergarten. Um, and so, um, so I think it's, it's difficult to overstate how disrupted children's lives have been um, and why it's so crucial that we are doing everything we can as the grownups in the situation to you know, support them and make up for what they've lost.
0: Right. Okay. So an urgent problem, a great solution, and then that means you guys have really been successful. I mean, it, uh, it's it's stunning. So can you say a bit about you know your growth and your success and and, and whatnot?
1: <laughs> yeah, your words, not mine. But thank you. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's in some ways, um, you know, uh, you wish it were under different circumstances. But uh, when schools began going to distance learning, the fact that that our product um, supports distance learning and, and makes it easy for a teacher who isn't in the same room as a student to do the kinds of teaching activities that they would do need, to need in the classroom. You know, we've had pretty exponential growth. Um, so company-wise, you know, we're we're sitting at about 20 times where we were before the pandemic. Um, and um, well, reaching... you mean
0: 20, 20x your revenue or how would you put it? Yeah, yeah
1: 20x revenue uh, and 20x students. Um, so yeah, yeah we're yeah. we're reaching... Over 300,000 students across 35 states um, mm-hmm. with our kind of SaaS product, uh, with our live tutoring services, we're contracted to serve over 80,000 students, um, making us the largest provider wow. of school-based tutoring in America. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been a tremendous amount of growth. Um, again, I wish it were under different circumstances, but uh, it does feel good. And I think our employees are really motivated by the idea that, you know, we're, we're directly addressing this crisis um, and stepping up for students in a time of, of, as you said, of urgent need.
0: And you have like whole states, right? Like like Texas and any kid in Texas can get access to Booknook and the, the state or the whole system pays for it? Or how does that work?
1: <laughs> I wish it were so. Uh, we do yeah, have a state no. contract with the state of Texas. Um, it's a little more complicated than kind of universal access. But yes, the state of Texas contracted with us. Uh, they passed a, a requirement that students receive tutoring uh, in grades three through eight if they failed a section on the state test or didn't take the state test. We are one of three choices districts can implement. And uh, if they choose to implement us, the state pays for it. Um, and that's enabled us to engage about 200 school districts across Texas, which we're really proud of. Um, and uh, but Texas, like many states, uh, places a lot of value on local control of education. So so it's not like they chose us for every school. Um, they said, if schools want to adopt you, we'll pay for it um, and then help promote us to schools, which we appreciated. Uh, and that program's been chugging along and, and driving. You know both a lot of growth uh, for us in terms of our reach, but also, again, academic gains for students. Um, and we'll actually do another study, Texas. Um, the state was was nice enough to provide some funding uh, in, to also uh, engage teachers' college once again to do uh, more uh, experimental design research so that we can hopefully make this a model for other states and show not just that you know students got a lot of tutoring, that tutoring was beneficial. The students who received tutoring, you know showed more academic growth and students who didn't receive tutoring. It's a time where research, where you know, practitioners are really hungry for more research and to kind of understand what works, um, and so we're trying to simultaneously serve a lot of kids who have a lot of needs, and then also you know document that in research um, so that uh, these new best practices emerge um, and educators feel like they know they know what to do when they see students who're struggling.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're about to shift into your mission, but before we do, where do you see Book Nook? Heading. Are you going to do things other than reading? You're going to be global. You're going to work with adults. Uh, what, what's on the What's on the horizon?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a tremendous amount of need just in the space of early reading. That's you know our immediate focus. You know, uh, one of the other crises we haven't talked about um, that again was an issue before the pandemic, but has gotten dramatically worse since then um, is uh, the shortage of teachers uh, and staff in schools, um, which has gotten really painful for school systems. I was talking with a a superintendent in West Texas yesterday who uh, said they started their last school year with 18% of their positions vacant, um, which is, you know, a huge number um, of students that were being basically taught by subs or kind of passed around to other classrooms. So, you know, it's one of those situations where um, it's really unfortunate, once again, that districts are struggling so much. um, But at the same time, uh, the pandemic taught us that virtual teaching is is not so scary um, and can actually help a lot and can be done in high quality ways. Um, So I think the future for us is, is really kind of expanding beyond tutoring um, and helping districts understand that, you know, hey, that virtual person who is doing, you know, small group tutoring and helping your students in an intervention setting, maybe can also help a classroom teacher who is struggling with a larger and larger class size and can take a group of students, uh, you know, and, and do something more personalized with them and make it a little easier to manage the classroom. And I think, Everybody needs to sort of get their heads around the idea that we're likely to see much larger class sizes in the United States as this, um, you know, this kind of teacher shortage continues. Um, And we're trying to help districts start to think creatively about how they can make sure that students still get excellent education, even if they're struggling with, you know, almost one in five vacancy rate among their teachers.
0: So almost like an assistant teacher, the way you're, you know, like sometimes they have two teachers in the classroom, the head teacher and the assistant, and the the assistant can kind of take a group and almost like that. And yeah, imagine if you
1: had like three or four, um, right? right. Um, and uh, the beauty of virtual teaching is like, it's so flexible and easy. And yeah. And so, yeah, I think, um, you know, I think there's a, a really big set of spaces where we can do a lot more for schools. Um, and, you know, we're trying to kind of boil the frog a little bit with tutoring uh, because tutoring is something districts understand. It's, it feels safe. A lot of it happens after school. So we're in the school building, but we're not, you know, intersecting with what teachers do. But as you do that research, I was talking about, and show the results, and show that this works, and show how you know flexible and easy and inconvenient, and sorry, inexpensive this is. Um, you know, we think more and more districts will start to turn to that as the way that they deal with their staffing shortages.
0: Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. Wow. Just the whole thing is 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 amazing, and it's so cool that you're able to step in and, and address this problem that's so important to so many people. Okay, let's shift to your mission. And how it how it helps you that's the point of this whole thing is, is this uh, conversation is we try to drill into you know how exactly is your social mission a competitive advantage you know some people might think of it as a drawback, but we think of it as the opposite as like a, a, a weapon almost you know so a way to use your mission for to get you know achieve achieve a result so where do you want to start there's hiring there's fundraising there's culture uh, sales and marketing. Can you think yeah, of a story, I mean, or you know, what, what's then. the biggest biggest way that uh, your mission helps you, you know, be more successful as a business?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we can talk about it, um, you know, in, in both kind of a financing and the sales standpoint. And you know, as I referenced, like you know, there's a booming tutoring market in the United States right now. Um, you know, school districts are pouring like literally hundreds of millions of dollars out in new vendor contracts to tutor tutoring companies. And not all of them have that dual bottom line that we have. Not all of them care about measuring efficacy and care about showing academic growth for students. Um, So first and foremost, there's sort of a a strategic and sector advantage because uh, we feel that tutoring can ultimately become, you know, kind of ensconced as a a right that students have um, and that's just expected to be provided by the school when students struggling. That's a, a new idea. But um, but we only get to do that. We only get to see this market continue to be huge and robust if that tutoring is effective um, and if it's actually making a difference for kids. Um, so so I think that's a huge part of, of sort of how we think about strategy. And from a sales standpoint, you know, it, it's uh, crucial that we can step in and say, we're effective. We're actually moving the needle for kids academically. We're, we're helping benefit them. Um, and that's like, tends to be, you know, sort of one of the first things we tell a district. Um but actually, the story I want to tell is about pricing. Um, and and I think there are, you know, sort of, um, I, I think it should be the case, um, although unfortunately it isn't, that having efficacy research and showing that there's academic benefit to students from the services you provide, that should be table stakes for any education product. Um, but fortunately, it's not, but it should be. Um, but even going above and beyond that, um, you know, thinking about the equity of how you approach school systems. Um, you know, in this country, there are drastically different school systems, oftentimes, that sit right next door to each other, right? Like my kids were in the Berkeley Unified School District, uh, right, next door to the Oakland Unified School District. And, and those school systems are very different students and families. Um, and so how do you think about that equitably? And so going way back to the beginning of the pandemic, uh, when George Floyd was murdered, uh, and the sort of whole world was, was thinking about equity and what we could do, and companies were putting out all these statements that say, you know, we stand with the Black community, at BookNook, we we went a step further. We really stepped back and we tried to examine the uh, equity practices that we had and how we were intersecting with these communities and and tried to do the sort of soul searching that I think every company should do if they're serious about DEIB. And you know, we realized you know it's it's we were doing things that weren't fair um, and that were exacerbating. Equity. So. For example, we charge, yeah, like on what? A per, yeah, we charge on a per student basis, right? And our product is primarily used for students who are struggling. So that means we're automatically charging more to a district like Oakland than we are to a district like Berkeley. Um, and there's a, an embedded inequality in the way we think about how we price. Um, and so uh, with your partner, Wes, uh, we engaged in discussion with our board, investors, and team. And we said, you know what, we have to change our pricing. Um, and if we continue down this pathway, what we're doing is fundamentally not equitable. Um, and is sort of asking those who need these services the most to pay the most for them. And, and so that summer, we announced our equity-based pricing plan. Um, and we said we would actually expressly take into account a district's economic profile um, when deciding kind of how to charge them. Um, that to this day is baked into our pricing model. Um, and... You know, we were a new company at the time. We were sort of just beginning to get this big upsurge of business coming off the pandemic. As you can imagine, uh, board members had some questions, and Wes, Wes himself may have, uh, that like, was this the right mm-hmm. decision? How was it gonna hurt our margin? Was it gonna hurt our revenue growth? Um, but you know, we we felt that it was the right thing to do. It was consistent with our mission. Um, and you know, we hoped that it was taking a stand in a more meaningful way and then just putting out a statement that said we stand with the black community. Right. Um and right. so So we did it. um, And I'm pleased to say that we, as predicted, not only more than made up for the sort of revenue loss in the per student charge um, by volume, um, but we won deals very specifically because of that. Um, Our tutoring product has been driving the most growth uh, in the last two years. And uh, like the third customer we ever sold that product to said, I chose to talk to you because I saw the announcement about equity-based pricing. Um, And Mm. I said this is a company that gets me. This is a company that understands my students, why I'm here, uh, what motivates me. And I, I want to talk to that company. And, and that's a company I want to do business with. Um, and so it didn't just um, help us, you know, in, in sort of the positioning of our company and, and sort of um, how we thought of ourselves, you know, as providing more equity, but it drew districts to us um, that are serving those kinds of kids and said, you know, sort of, we had demonstrated a shared value, uh, that we were both committed to equity. and. Um, has has been cited in many, many more deals that we've won ever
0: since then. That's great. So so are you saying that like if you weren't a mission-driven company, you might not have made that pricing change? And you might have thought, you know, the greedy way here is to just charge more and more per student and you know, and walk with the Absolutely. money. Right. Yeah and, yeah. and you thought, well, no, that's not how we roll. It's not fair. We need to address this. And by sort of demonstrating that you care. And that you're really on a mission. It actually attracted people. Is that what you're saying? Exactly right. Yep. Uh, customers. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, school districts—they're besieged by vendors, particularly right now. Right. Everyone knows all this federal money is sloshing around in the K-12 system, and you know, I think they—they they decide who they want to talk to. And uh, we train our salespeople at Booknote that in those first conversations, you know, that they're going to forget the features of the product. You know, they're not going to remember that cool, you know, doodad you showed them. What they're going to remember mm-hmm. is, is this company shares my values. Um, they, they get up every morning motivated by the same things I do. Mm-hmm. Um, they care about my students. They understand my students. And I'm going to keep talking to this company, even though I'm going to completely forget everything they said about their product. Um, I'm mm-hmm. going to keep talking to this company. Um, and, and I think that's paying off. Um, I think that's both enabling us to do a better job serving those communities because we come from a place of empathy and understanding, um, but also... You know, it's it's helping us to definitely bring more school systems and more customers into our orbit because they, they want to do business with uh, yeah. a company that shares their values.
0: Yeah. So let's let's dig into this a little more. It's it's a little delicate here, so I'll be careful with my questioning. But like, is there a perception in the market that some of the ed tech companies are you know like greedy and they're they're profiteering and they have venture capital behind them and all that's bad and you know reluctant to work with them? And so, you know, proving that you're not like that and that you're a for-profit business for a reason, you know, and you really care and you understand and it's a better offer than, you know, a better product than they would get from elsewhere. Talk about that. Is there this like stigma of a for-profit company and how how do you deal with that? And does your mission, you know, like, does your mission help? Yeah, for
1: sure. Um, I ran a nonprofit before this, as you referenced. Um, Mm So it was... You know uh, when I came to booknik was the first time I had a dot com in my email address pretty much my whole career um and so mm-hmm. um it was something I grappled with and and you know I think the social sector is you know a really great place to try new programs and be able to drive the kind of research that helps expand understanding of of what uh communities that are disadvantaged or disenfranchised uh, need, but at the same time, you know nonprofits struggle with scale um and you know, we used to think we were a pretty big deal. Reading Partners serving fifteen thousand students a year um, out of a you know twelve million student problem. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, and I think in the early days, I, I made the decision that Booknip would be a for-profit because I felt that this model was more scalable in the end. And the reality is that mm-hmm. that schools in America, you know, when they contract with third-party vendors, you know, ninety percent of those vendors are for-profit. Um, so, who sells them food for the lunchroom and buses or transportation services? you know, or curriculum or computers, whatever it is, like 90% of those vendors are, are for-profit. So, um, so I don't think it's necessarily a stigma you're mm-hmm. a for-profit. Um, but I do think, you know, given um, the way tech is being portrayed in the media right now, I do think, you know, technology providers are viewed as, you know, more questionable um, and, um, and companies mm-hmm. that, you know, seem to be going out and, and sort of monetizing their success in, you know, working with school systems in the venture markets, uh, raising big rounds of funding. Um, I think they're sort of uh, rightfully sometimes looked at by school systems who serve, you know, very poor students and families, um, you know, with a little bit of a question mark. Um, and so, yeah, so I think the fact that we, we sort of, um, you know, kind of yeah. are, are in this middle space where we're a dual bottom line company, uh, that's mm-hmm. you know, in our mission statement, uh, it's in the term sheets we sign with many of our investors. Including, I believe, Better Ventures requires mm-hmm. us to report impact metrics. Yep. And, you know, so yeah, we do try to say we're, we're different both than the nonprofit because we can scale. Um, you know, Reading Partners works with Los Angeles Unified School District, um, one of our, our larger partners. Uh, when I was there, we were serving, you know, 500, 1,000 students uh, a year. BookNook, we just launched our first cohort of tutoring with LA Unified, serving 7,000 students, and that's in, in year one. Um, and so, so we're serving a lot more kids in LA yeah. with this model. I'm proud of that. And, but I think you know the fact that um, we also are able to talk about you know efficacy, and we included our equity-based pricing and how we charge LE Unified. Um, you know, I, I do think that sets us apart from some of our other vendors, um, and you know is why mm-hmm. the district was excited to, to partner with us. Um, so so it can be you know sort of the best of both yeah. worlds, right? Like the sort of social mission from the nonprofit mm-hmm. space, but the scalability and and innovation of the tech space. I, I truly believe that bringing those two things together is, mm-hmm. is um, the most powerful solution for you know, education inequity in the United States.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right, and, and and I love that. When we got started, like 11 years ago, we used to talk about how you know investors have traditionally thought of you know their philanthropy and they're making money, and they didn't really mix the two. And part of our whole reason for being was that you know you could make money and do good and not necessarily compromise. And you could align your money with your values. You don't have to just wait till you're at the end of your career and make some donations. And you guys are just like a, a real embodiment of that uh, you know, sort of sweet spot, middle ground, where you're able to do more than a nonprofit and better than a, a non-mission-driven company and just really thrive and serve this market and with such an urgent problem. It's, it's exciting to see. Yeah,
1: thanks. No, I couldn't agree more. Um, and... You know, I really believe this kind of this, like I said, third way, you know, that we talked about of, of sort of mission-driven yeah. companies with the dual bottom line. I I think in many ways, that's the future of the social sector. Um, And uh, I'm really glad that there are funds like yours out there that say, you know, we can still deliver top quartile results to investors um, Even yeah. in doing impact investing.
0: And, yeah, exactly. You know, for
1: a long time, there was this kind of the stigma that people expected concessionary returns if they were investing exactly. in ESG. And I think funds like yours are really disproving that and showing that you it's a false choice to invest along with your values and get market rate returns. And and so I'm glad that funds like better ventures are helping show that, you know, investors don't have to make that choice.
0: Yeah. I want to switch to DEI in a minute because you guys have just hit the cover off the ball to use a sports analogy there. Um, But any other stories about like hiring or, or, you know, other ways that like maybe in your culture, that you feel that the company's outperformed, say, you know, when they had to work on weekends or get through COVID or whatever, that the, either hiring or the employees are more committed?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's in some ways, uh, from an employee motivation standpoint, it's it's a blessing and a curse. Um, you know, you, you feel this sense of responsibility to the communities you're working with. We know you are working with some of the most vulnerable students um, who have experienced all of the trauma of the pandemic. And so on the one hand, it's incredibly motivating for our, our workforce and people do go above and beyond. You know, when we, we launched with Los Angeles, you know, as happens sometimes, um, you know, some tutors didn't show up to their sessions and, and our team like literally dove into those Zoom rooms and we're like, we're going to tutor these kids ourselves um, just to make sure mm-hmm. that every child gets what they need. Oh, wow. Um, and, yeah. But, you know, that that can burn people out uh, really fast too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's really important that mission-driven companies, you know, while, um, you know, motivating employees and, and using that as a tool to keep people really fired up and passionate and, and wanting to be a part of the company... Are also taking care of them um, and making sure that that people don't, you know, get so uh, so passionate about what we're doing that they ultimately kind of burn themselves out uh, and you know reduce their their long term ability to contribute to the mission. Um, so we try to take you know special programs at BookNook. We we do two weeks a year of what we call closure. We just shut the business down um, and send everybody home um, and tell them to go recharge their batteries. Um, You know, we just actually are are implementing a new uh, thing that I'm uh, enjoying. One of our values at Book Nook is get stuff done. Um, And uh, so we started having a GSD day every week where we tell people like, don't take meetings, don't do anything, just like get caught up, get feeling good about your workflow um, and, you know, get out from under some things. Um, And so I think there are are programs that, um, and I'm going to give a shout out to Stephen from our team, by the way, I did not invent that idea. But yeah, I think there is, um, you know, uh, stuff that companies can do to make sure that you're you're both like getting the positives of being mission driven in the way that it motivates your your workforce, but also you know taking steps to make sure that you don't create burnout at the same time.
0: Awesome. Let's shift to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, you guys have done really well. You know, so many startups and just companies, organizations in general, struggle with hiring a diverse team. Yet we all know that it has advantages, and it's so it's it's often hard to do. Can you say, you know, what, what have you done? How successful have you been there and like what's behind it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, um, I appreciate the kind words about it, but I think we have both view it as like, it's a constant effort. We're, we're not where we need to be. Um, you know, we're, we're doing DEIB work, you know, week in, week out. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, like a marriage. It's something you can never take for granted. You have to constantly work at it. Um, and, um, so it's, it's been a crucial part of our values from day one. Um, and, you know, I'm proud that, you know, both the diversity of our workforce and and what our employees tell us in anonymous surveys indicate uh, that we're, you know, successfully bringing women, people of color and people that are, um, you know, of of diverse uh, sexual orientations and uh, abilities uh, all feel like they can both work here and thrive here. Um, But you sort of never can sort of say, well, you know, look at how diverse our workforce is. We've done a good job. Um, It's it's much more uh, than that. Um, And so, so yeah, we, we've made it a priority, um, and you know we've invested in, you know, kind of uh, both uh, sort of uh, recruiting efforts um, that have helped with that. Um, and we actually are right this moment. I'll get a shout out on your podcast hiring for our first um, head of DEIB, so a full time position that,
0: All right. wow.
1: that does nothing but DEIB. Yeah, so we're we're about 150 people in the company right now. So I think. As we've been interviewing candidates, um, you know, I, the team told me yesterday. I've been like, you know, let's get somebody from another tech company. They're like, most tech companies are like five thousand people before they hire this position, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and I was like, oh, that's kind of a bummer. Um, but um, but apparently, <laughs> apparently, if we want to hire somebody from another tech company, we have to aim for some pretty big companies, um, and so. But yeah, I, we felt that it was you know even at our stage, it was something that was really important to be intentional about and. You know, particularly in a company that's growing really rapidly and stretched really thin, um, you know, kind of making sure that we had somebody who could stay focused on this issue was was really important to us. Um,
0: so how diverse is your team? Can you say a bit about that?
1: Yeah, our last survey, um, 40% of our workforce identifies people of color, uh, 60% identify as non-male. Um, and so, you know, sort of uh, compared to the rest of the tech sector, um, that's a pretty diverse workforce. Um, but like I said, um, you know, it's... it's um, doing a good job, being welcoming of, of people of different backgrounds is only step one um, of having a company that's really committed to DIB, and, and we include that B for belonging, right? Like we want you to not just feel like, you know, you look around and see other people that look like you or that accept you, but also that you belong in this company and that you're thriving, growing, that uh, the power base in the company is is shared evenly um, in ways that are equitable. Um, and so, you know, so that's why I say it's, it's kind of a constant effort. And I think Companies that that measure their kind of DEIB success by the just by the diversity of their workforce, like that's a good first step. Um, and, and this is a journey. Like you know, everyone has to start a journey with a single step. Um, but you have to push past that. You have to really ask yourselves. You know, well, so are the people thriving here? Are they getting promoted? Do they feel um, like they're treated equitably? Do they feel like they belong? Um, and uh, and so that's why, like I said, we also do employee surveys anonymously. We do listing sessions, we have uh, special slack channels uh, that people are you know can participate in, and you know we really try to kind of create this environment where you know we, we don't just sort of stop at the like you know idea of the the sort of who of the workforce um, you know is enough
0: and can you think of ways that the diversity of your team has helped the per- the performance of the co- the company and and the culture, I mean, that's kind of the holy grail is to you know have a, have a diverse team and get the advantages of all that diversity.
1: Yeah, of course. No, I mean, so, um, you know, we, we do a lot of programs where we work directly with families uh, when we're doing tutoring. Tutoring is happening at home, we're enrolling families. Um, and, you know, that means we have to really understand um, if we're going to be able to do our job um, and communicate with families in, uh, you know, traditionally disenfranchised communities. You know, if we showed up with a bunch of of privileged white people that were like, "Hey, I went to University of Michigan," you know, let me help you. Um, like, you know, I think that's not likely to succeed. Um, uh, but instead, we've been able to hire people, you know, often from the community. Uh, so, some of our most successful family engagement campaigns, you know, we've got um, a woman named Chauncey in uh, Prince George's County. I mentioned that. You know, she she lives in PG County. She's a former teacher. She, um, you know, really understands the kind of the the community that we're serving and and you know, can speak with empathy and credibility, both to the school district and to when she interacts with families that were normal in the program. You know, we take a similar approach with our program in Shelby County Schools, which is Memphis, Tennessee. And so, yeah, so I think we've really tried to, um, you know, to leverage the fact that if we hire this diverse workforce and they, they come from a place of, of really deeply understanding the communities that we aim to serve, we, we can do a better job. Um, and, you know, some of our contracts require, you know, we get paid based on how many students we enroll in the tutoring contract. And so there's, once again, that sort of like virtuous self-interest where, you know, the better we are at understanding families and getting students enrolled in tutoring, it's, it's better for the student because they get services. that are going to help move the needle for them academically. And it's better for our business um, because we can serve more kids and, and ultimately, um, you know, drive up the revenue that we can can earn from that contract. So. So it's one of those wonderful things where it all comes together. Like everybody wins if you're doing this well, um, you know. And you're creating employment in the community. You know, you're creating a diverse workforce for BookNook. You're doing a good thing for students. You're driving revenue growth. Like you know, it, it's all bread and roses.
0: Yeah, so exciting. Um, and then does does it snowball in a way? Like like once you, if you think back to when you didn't have a diverse workforce and you had to sort of work on it. Now that you have one, uh, or you know, you're getting there does it help you to, re- to attract and retain more underrepresented people from underrepresented groups because they like joining a company that's already diverse versus one that's not?
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, many times in a job interview, um, candidates have remarked to me that, you know, they go and look at our, you know, our website or they've heard from others, you know, that are in their network. Um, and, you know, I think it's absolutely a situation where, you know, one of the best things you can do to help people feel a sense of belonging in the company is is make them feel like they're not alone and they're not the only person who you know identifies as they identify um, and and you know it's a as your companies I'm sure know it's an incredibly uh, challenging job market right now and so the more you give yourselves those advantages and and the more kind of identifications that people can see themselves in within your company and feel like I'm not the only one um, like you're just giving yourself a big shot in the arm for hiring. And, you know, uh, you know, particularly technical talent and product talent, like they have a lot of choices. They can choose to go a lot of places. Um, and the more you show that this is the place you want to be, um, you know, uh, the better. Um, so, so, yeah, you know, if I got to compete with Google and Facebook, like I'm proud to say that, you know, our, our metrics look a lot better than their metrics. Um, and hopefully, you know, promising engineers uh, or technical folks uh, that are looking for you know, the opportunity to work for a company that both does things that they feel proud of um, that are benefiting the community and also where they can feel like they're working with people who understand them or where they feel like they belong. Like, I think that's a, a great, you know, kind of secret weapon in recruiting.
0: So our, our target um, market listener for this, this conversation is, is founders. So can you say on DEI, like, what's something you did that helped you diversify your team? Cause you know, some may be wondering, like, well, what do I do? How do I, I want this? How do I do it? Can you can you talk about like something you did that that helped get you there that a founder would, you know, find valuable?
1: Yeah. I mean, one of my pieces of advice to every founder is like, write down your values very early in the company. And and that's just advice regardless of DEIB. Um, but decide what your company is about. Um and how you do the work is as important as what you do. Um and so. Establish your values. And in our case, we established, you know, um, we, the value we call it is we are our community. Um, But we established EIB as a value, you know, back when we had like two employees. Um, And we all agreed this was important to us and that we were committed to it. And then that began to inform the hiring choices we make. And if you're committed uh, to building a diverse workforce, that means you're going to have to maybe take more time um, when you're doing recruiting to make sure that your candidate pool. You know, reflects the diversity that you hope to see in your workforce. Um, that might mean investing more money in building relationships with HBCUs, for example, uh, in order to support your recruitment. Um, and and I think you know there are lots of little things you can do, um, but the most important big thing is to establish that value um, and uh, make sure that your company all you know embrace it. Um, and I'm fond of saying a book that your your values only matter if you stick to them when it's hard, and so. So it's easy to say, yeah, we're in a DIB, and then go hire a bunch of white people. And so um, so you have to stick to it. And that might mean like, it takes longer to fill that engineering role. That might mean it takes longer to fill that sales role. Um, but you know, your values only matter if you stick to them when they're hard. So you have to be willing to accept that trade-off. Um, and to know that the long-term benefits of what you're doing are going to outweigh the short-term pain of taking more time or investing more in how you build your workforce. And also... I think it's really, really important that founders, like I said, don't just think of like, oh, you know, I look at my team and my team looks diverse and therefore I'm doing a good job. It's like committing to the full DEIB experience and making sure that after you've hired those folks that you're, um, like I said, like asking yourselves questions constantly about like, you know, are we behaving equitably? Is who gets promoted equitable? Is who has power in the company equitable? Like, I think those are are really important considerations as well. So, So don't just stop at, you know, I hired a diverse
0: workforce. And just to put a pin in this, before we move on um, from DEI, to be clear, you're doing this because it's the right thing to do, and it's really helping you. It's not that you're doing it because you feel you have to, or you know, it's going to hurt your, your business.
1: Yeah, no, there's plenty of very successful uh, education companies out there that that you know are, um, you know, again, they, they probably have a statement that they say they are committed to DIB, but when you look at you know, kind of what their practices are. Um, Maybe it, it doesn't come through, um, and so, um, so yeah, it's it's you know virtuous self-interest. Like I said, it's the right thing to do, um, and um, you know I'm, I'm proud of us that we made that choice and we continue to make that choice. Um, but it has also benefited our business. It's helped us to do a better job serving the communities that we serve, particularly given that if you're like I said, if you're a mission-driven company like ours, it's serving you know primarily students of color and primarily dis, you know disfranchised communities like you know, it's, you know, kind of a crazy business strategy to say, like I said, a bunch of white people that went to Harvard are going to try to solve the problems of, you know, uh, disenfranchised communities in South LA. Um, And so, so yeah, so there's, there's a virtuous self-interest to
0: it for sure. Okay, let's, let's, uh, before we wrap up here, let's talk a bit about the ed tech market. Um, How do you see the market and industry evolving? Like, what are the trends going on? You know, what's the most, what's exciting in the ed tech market right now?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's boom Um, and I I talk about the pandemic as kind of like a time machine that shot us forward 10 years, um, in a lot of ways, both good and bad. Um, so, you know, one-to-one device access uh, for students, like the idea that every kid has a a Chromebook or a laptop or a tablet before the pandemic, that was a long ways in the future. Now that future is here. Um, that creates a tremendous amount of opportunity for, for ed tech companies, um, particularly ones like ours that are one-to-one device required. Um, you know, but it also accelerated the problem. So teacher shortages, uh, some of the achievement issues we've struggled with, uh, as, I rep- as we talked about earlier. So, you know, the federal USER, uh, you know, stimulus spending that's gone out, um, you know, means that also, probably for the first time in my career, um, you know, school districts like, you know, have their financial problems, but um, they have access to unprecedented amounts of federal dollars to kind of help navigate that situation. So there's a lot of really positive tailwinds um, that uh, make us very bullish on kind of what we'll see in ed tech growth over the next two to three years. Um, but I think it's also a time of peril um, because, as we talked about earlier, with all that new money and all that new greenfield kind of spend, lots of vendors are piling in the space. and And some of them are, you know, there for virtuous reasons and you know, are dual bottom line like we are and are really thinking what's best for students. And some of them are just chasing money. Um, and I think, you know, there's going to be a, a kind of moment in the market in the next couple of years where districts are going to have to, you know, kind of separate the wheat from the chaff um, and where that federal money is going to start getting spent down. Um, and so I think it's it's really important that founders in the ed tech space are really thinking about like, what what is life after ESSER going to look like? And how do I demonstrate enough value to school systems when it comes to student achievement um, that... You know, sort of, they're going to want to keep me around um, and you know, and how I'm not going to be the vendor. You know, I, I talk about the post-esser world sometimes like the Hunger Games, right? Like, you, know, you, you want to be the last one left. Um, and it's going to you know, require companies to really think about the value proposition they bring to the school system. Some of the things we talked about, too, about shared values, like districts are going to have to make tough choices. And you want to make sure you've positioned yourself well for those. Mm-hmm. But for the next two years, it's going to be great. And um, there's going to be a tremendous amount of growth for companies.
0: Yeah. In the broader, like, work community, I think people are getting used to some, some, like, venture funds are getting rid of their office entirely, right? Do you think there's a potential to, you know, really change the way kids learn beyond the classroom? I mean, like, imagine if, (laughs) like, no, like, if, if, if instead of, you know, everyone has been returning to the classroom and that's been, you know, talked about as really important for that in-person experience. But can you see technology, you know, helping the classroom evolve beyond what it is right now with kids sitting in rows and listening to the teacher?
1: Yeah, exactly. No, I, I think um, the genie is out of the bottle with virtual teaching. Um, and you know, I think we have to figure out how we do it well um, so that it's rigorous instruction that is, you know, meaningful for students. You have know, to do it in ways that teachers feel supported by it um, and that this is something that they value having in the classroom. But it's here to stay, um, and it's going to help school districts uh, and teachers solve a lot of the problems they're grappling with. You know, the bummer—I grew up in northern Michigan. Um, I, I think virtual teaching may be the end of the snow day. Um, you know, we've seen districts that uh, already are saying, "Well, you know, there's snow on the road, so we don't want to bring you into the buildings, but we'll just do virtual teaching today." Which,
0: you know, probably a bummer for
1: those kids, um, but
0: wouldn't have happened before. Yeah, they would be on their sleds.
1: Exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. If if they were like, "Everybody, get out your Chromebook!" Uh, before the pandemic, that wouldn't have happened. But now districts can do it. Um, so I, I really think it's a powerful tool. Um, I think if used well, it can you know really help us to address these issues of equity in education. But the key is used well. And that means, like I said, great teaching with a rigorous approach that's going to be meaningful for kids. Um, and uh, that's why it's really important that companies like ours that provide that, you know, get out there and tell our story and document it with research and, you know, demonstrate to school systems that, you know, this this can be done and can be done well.
0: So you gave some advice for founders earlier about DEI. Can you just say uh, broadly, you know, about a mission-driven company? What would be your advice to founders who want to pursue a mission-driven company?
1: Yeah, coming in the water's fine. Um, you know, the ESG space of investing has gotten much more robust, um, and so you know it's not as hard to find capital that's aligned to your values as it used to be those funds extend into later rounds for companies too. You know, it used to be that you'd worry, yeah, there were seed funds out there. You could maybe get through your first one or two financings working with ESG investors. But once you need to raise the larger dollars, you know, you were going to have to go to the dark side. Um, Not that I think that, you know, non-ESG investors are the dark side, but, um, but, uh, you know, now there are so many large funds um, that are out there um, that, you know, really provide access to capital for founders late into the development of their business, um, so they can continue to stay in that mission-driven mindset.
0: Yeah. Like who? Like OWL and, and Learn and, OWL, yeah. Um, Learn, you know, TPG Rise. I was, you
1: know, if you want to sort of talk about there, you know, are a number of funds out there now that are in the hundreds of millions or mm-hmm. know, rise over a billion dollars. Um so um, so it's out there, um, and I think that's exciting. And like I said, I think for all the reasons we talked about, like it yeah. can be a competitive advantage, in how you build your team, and how you you know recruit customers, and how you build your brand. And so, so there's never been a better time uh, to, mm-hmm. to start a, a you know kind of mission driven dual bottom line startup. All
0: right, well said. So if you were to summarize your personal mission, if I were to say Michael Lombardo is on a mission to what?
1: Yeah. I'm on a mission to ensure equitable access to a world-class education to every student.
0: There you have it, Uh, Michael Lombardo on a mission to ensure equitable access to an education to every student. Thanks for coming, Michael.
1: My pleasure, Rick. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to Mission Driven. To find out more about Better Ventures, visit us at better.bc or on Twitter at Better Ventures.